Hey, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by Alex Kashuta. Alex is a writer, a cultural critic, a podcast host from Romania. Her writing has been featured at the New York Post, the American Main, Vice, and other outlets. She's the host now of the fantastic Subversive podcast. So just to begin then, Alex, um, I want to ask you what moved you first to start the podcast? Um, I think I had the the opportunity to speak to people who were very interesting to me because um, I got a little bit of notoriety on, on Twitter <laughs> and uh, I also had uh, a lot of mutuals or you know that's that's Twitter speak for people who follow you and you follow them um, who were extremely interesting people a lot of them anonymous as well um, and I thought okay these pe- this is the format that they present themselves in um, but I think they might be fascinating conversationalists as well and I think I was right because a lot of them turned out to be. Uh, so that was kind of the, the initial purpose of my, my podcast. Since then, I've had some more, not necessarily mainstream, but people who appear with their face in, in the world who exist in, in that sphere as well. Um, so it's kind of a mix of, of both anonymous people and people who um, have a public profile and something interesting to say, uh, especially about um, what is now probably called the, the post-liberal moment. There's a whole... Um, there's many, many conversations going on about this whole concept of post-liberalism. A lot of people see faults in liberalism. Uh, some people think that they are um, at at the root. You know, there's a there's a rot that starts from the bottom of the of the system. So um, there needs to be there needs to be a lot of conversations about what what comes next. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to explore that space as well. Mm, excellent. And then um, I want to ask you a bit about that term subversive. So I think. In contrast to a lot of the kind of online pandering and pseudo uh, activism, there is something genuinely subversive about your podcast. And uh, I want to ask you about that title and why subversive and why now in this way, I suppose. Yeah, I think um, the the name subversive or the um, kind of the attribute subversive was uh, attributed to kind of communist infiltrators back in the day. And it's associated with all sorts of other um, kind of uh, subgroups that infiltrate and and, uh, disturb uh, an existing order. Um, That's not the case in here. here. Essentially, the people that I speak to are the subversives of today. You know, they are infiltrated. A lot of them are anonymous. They kind of exist in, in parallel uh, to normal society um, and they kind they have to hide and they have to be subversive to subvert things from the inside uh, because the, the the standing regime um, will not um, protect them if they if they are um, open with their ideas so essentially that was the idea behind subversive um, at the same time, you know, it's you know, the, the market's saturated with all sorts of names. <laughs> and I thought this was a, you know, this was a decently free space around this word, uh, and that's also a big, uh, a big consideration in choosing it. Mm, marvelous, thanks, Alex. And um, I want to ask you then about your own kind of personal journey, as it were, and what broke the spell regarding your kind of maybe faith in the myths of liberalism in its kind of broad philosophical and anthropological sense, even aside from that kind of specific political sense, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it, it, it does make sense. Um, you know, what, what red-pilled me, <laughs> what, what yeah. radicalized me. Um, there is a, you know, this is probably a pipeline that's that's quite established at this point. Um, I stumbled upon the works of, of one Curtis Yarvin, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, um, tied into the works of Nick Land, which is kind of a, a British philosopher who kind of explores the same space. He refers to Curtis Yarvin quite a lot as well. So um, those were kind of the, the first the first works that um, let me know that there might be something interesting in this space. I wasn't sold actually for the first time I read these things because they're they're quite brutal. They're quite harsh for someone who's grown up in um, in you know immersed in liberalism. You know, it is the water we swim in. You know, it's very hard to see it from the outside. But what it did was kind of nudge me from my position at the center of, of my liberal existence to being able to kind of see it from the outside in a little bit and maybe not see it as the end of history as I've been taught, but all but as a a regime that um, you know has its own faults and has its own life cycle, um, and also look at it you know from a from kind of a game theoretical perspective like okay what happens next you know where we have this chessboard set up this way uh, and it's been set up this way maybe a hundred two hundred years ago which is. I think the the main difference between kind of post-liberal thinking and what, for example, the IDW would say, uh, you know, which is kind of the, the main anti-woke core of people talking about, okay, well, these wokies have gone crazy. Um, they would say, oh, okay, you know, things went badly, I don't know, in the 60s because they're, I don't know, French postmodernist infiltration into the universities or some more recent problem. Uh, what post-liberalism essentially does is it sees you know, the, um, it sees the premises of liberalism uh, being kind of the, the game theoretical, uh, you know, space where what wokeness and whatever comes after wokeness is, is almost essentially bound to happen. It's, it's, it's part of the flow of, of, of how something like this works because, um, it, you know, there are no core principles in liberalism. It's the idea that, you know, we can have pluralism, um, everyone can come to the table with their own value sets, uh, and the system itself is valueless. It just harbors these different groups of people. Uh, the reality is that the system has values. I mean, wokeness is the spirit of the system. It is the, the metaphysics of, of, of liberalism at the moment. So um, the idea that these values don't exist, no, they will just be seen as common sense because that's what a lot of people, especially people who strive to have status in the, in the current regime, they see, you know, uh, children transitioning or things like that. That's, you know, it wasn't common sense five years ago, but this permanent revolution is common sense, you know, not being with it, with the current ideas, you know, of, of, of the mainstream means that uh, you're retrograde uh, and you, you know, you, you do, you lack common sense. You're, you're someone who's, uh, uh, antiquated so yeah i think that's that was um you know the the radicalizing moment for me and obviously there's so many conversations flowing to this you know what i said my gateway was this space that's it's commonly referred to as neuroreaction but some other spaces have you know i've, I've had people on my podcast who are radicalized by, by more you know moderate people like for example reading uh, the decadent society by ross douthat which is a very uh you know moderate type book um so, yeah, more and more people are kind of coming to similar conclusions from different directions. Um, and it's, you know, it's an interesting space to be in. It's exciting intellectually. It's also really scary. It's very scary to, 
um, have to reassess the foundations of, of the world we live in, um, a, a, a prosperous world, a wonderful world in, in many ways, you know, with a lot of uh, advances and, um, you know, our, our ancestors did tend to live sometimes more brutal lives, more um, more problematic lives in, in many ways, but um, I think the, the problem is that we don't really have a choice because in a way post-liberalism also is, okay, liberalism is in decline. It's also realizing that liberalism is in decline, mm. you know, and even if we like some aspects of liberalism, how do we protect these from the forces that are tearing liberalism apart from the, from, from the inside? So, yeah, it's um, yeah, w wonderful, exhilarating, and, and also scary. <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> and uh, I want to ask you something that I find particularly interesting is your kind of um, awakening to the limitations of the kind of new atheist movement, which sort of came across in your talks with people like Paul Kingsnorth, whom I love, and um, Sarab Amari, people like that. And uh, it seems that you were once quite devoted to that movement, as it were, and what sparked that and how has that progressed? Yeah, I think, uh, to be honest, I think Jordan Peterson had quite a lot to do with that. You know, I, I, if you were connected to those conversations when, for example, Jordan Peterson had discussion with Sam Harris, and he used to be one of the, the high priests of, of uh, new atheism. Um, and I was really unsatisfied with how he performed in those debates. Like, I, I felt that you know, Peterson brought some, some, an entire extremely relevant space to the conversation, and Sam Harris was completely dismissing the, the, even the existence of that space. And that, to me, was, was quite, you know, shifted me quite, quite a lot. And I think from then, that point on, I became a bit, not, not necessarily suspicious, but, but much more open to uh, absorbing learnings from this alternative space that was presented by, by uh, Jordan Peterson. So um, to me, that was a really significant moment. Um, since then, I've kind of, yeah, learn learn more <laughs> about about religion. It's it's um it's a tough one because I was kind of marinating in, in new atheism for a very long time. I mean, I think I was a uh, in my early teens, maybe thirteen or fourteen, when I when I read the God Delusion, and I was so struck by it that I I bought multiple copies, which were very hard to get <laughs> in Romania. They were only in English, and I gave them to every person I knew that spoke English well enough to read it. I was really, it was kind of, um, you know, the, the zealotry of, of the converted, uh, and I was, I was very, very into it. <laughs> and I also kind of, um, I was really into debating people. I ruined many a party by being, you know, that person. <laughs> I to, you know, <laughs> debate, like, deeply religious. I don't know. I had, like, a, a friend who was, like, I think Baptist, and he was very religious. <laughs> and, you know, it took me months to break him down. And <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, looking back, you know, I was, you know, the um, the energies of youth. I definitely wouldn't do that now. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it w that was kind of the, the intellectual thing that you would do if you were that, that type of curious person. Um, and it was trending upwards. It was high status. Um, and then slowly, like I said, you know, it, it took it took someone like Jordan Peterson to provide a, a, an obviously good and obviously relevant alternative space that exists at least at the same status level as the one that uh, new atheism provided uh, and to say okay there is a you know the idea of that there's a whole other conception of truth outside of uh, you know the the rational uh, perspective where you're like okay I'm a rational animal I'm empirically observing the universe and I'm reacting in, in this space um, y there are many things that you can't observe there are many things that you can't even 
conceptualize and that can't even flow into into your decision making. So what do you do about that space? How do you interact with that? And then for that space, you have, um, you know, traditions, norms, things that maybe evolved as well, but they evolved under different types of pressures rather than, you know, what uh, what science tells us uh, is the direct line. So um, that was, yeah, for me, that was kind of a, an important um, milestone. Mm, excellent. Thanks for sharing, Alex. And um, I want to ask you next, if I may, about an historian that I'm particularly drawn to who, who had a kind of seminal role in my own political conversion, as it were, moving away from kind of liberal and kind of extreme left wing shiblets in some instances. So uh, Christopher Lash, I want to ask what is so insightful about him and his critiques of the kind of dominant culture of narcissism? And uh, how have you tried to go beyond this kind of self-obsession in your own life then? Has maybe even having a family um, impacted you in that respect? Yes, absolutely. I think the the wondrous thing about Christopher Lash and, and his works um, is that they were extremely, people say prescient, but, you know, it also explains that whatever we're experiencing now was very much present in, what was it, like the, the 70s and 80s, 90s as well, that he wrote in, um, and it was already kind of it, it reached its final form at that point. That's that's one interesting bit about about Lash. So he already kind of sensed the outline of the beast, and he was describing it exactly in exact detail at that point. Um, and has my my culture of narcissism changed uh, since I have become a, a mother? <laughs> yes, indeed it has, and uh, it also kind of um, allowed me to to realize how you know how much narcissism <laughs> I was involved in. Um, and it, it really, you know, it, it puts you outside of yourself in a way. Um, you're, you're not at the center of your, your own life anymore, in a, in a way. So, for example, I'm, I'm not as um, concerned about how I'm perceived by other people as I used to be. Just my, my order of priorities has changed. And the most important thing to me now is completely outside of myself. I'm, in a way, a mere protection mechanism for this other person. Uh, and it's good that way. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and it's also a relief. I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much pressure uh, narcissism is, how, much, how, much, um, how hard it is to strive to fulfill this image that you have of yourself or that you want others to have of you. It's, it's just a continual treading of, of water, a continual climb to a place that never comes. Uh, it's, it's exhausting. And I think it's tied into also the epidemic of anxiety uh, and depression that people are experiencing. Um, you know, the idea that you constantly have to live up to your authenticity. You have to discover yourself. You have to self-improve. You have to grind. You have to hustle. You have to have a side gig. You have to become someone in, in the, you know, in the complex tapestry of, of uh, unique beings that, that we all are. So it's, it's exhausting to, to just try to participate in society in the way that you're expected to. So uh, having a child really kind of kicks you out of that, that mode because um, not only is there someone who's more important, there are many activities to do. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just permanent relaxation. Their life becomes much harder. It becomes more physical. There, you have to, I have a very heavy child. I have to lug him around all day. You know, I'm already just, just from through that activity is, a, you know, I'm, I'm more embodied by having to do that. Um, and, you know, to, to play, to invent things, to sing to him, you know, you're, you're constantly connected to something that's outside of you, which is completely fascinating and wonderful and important. 
Uh, and in a way, you're kind of engaged in an act of worship because you're just biologically tied to this beautiful being. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a continuous process. You can't really say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm tired today. I'm just going to, you know, call it a day and I'm going to head to bed, call in sick to <laughs> being a mom. It doesn't really work, especially if you don't have much help around. Yeah. No, you're going to be have to continue being this. And in a way, you want to do it because, you know, it's, it's your child. It's, it's a, it's, it, I think it's a really wonderful process. Um, also, not to completely say that it's, it's all upside. Obviously, it is hard. My life is much harder than it used to be pra in practical mm -hmm. terms. Uh, but it's also much more meaningful and, and wonderful. So, yeah, I, I'd recommend it. You know, 10 out of 10 would, would do again. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, I want to ask you then, in light of that experience now, sort of looking back, how does that maybe contrast with the image that you had maybe growing up and this kind of impact of new waves of feminism? Because um, I've seen you have been more favorable now recently towards um, people like Mary Harrington, I think is fantastic, and a more nuanced um, understanding of feminism. And I wonder how, how that kind of marries or contrasts then. Yeah, um, well, growing up, I didn't want to have anything to do with uh, with the uh, classical domain of womanhood. I was very much, um, and you know, I was the the quintessence of the neoliberal individual. I just wanted to go off to college and never come back, and I don't know, go to work and make a lot of money. And you know, it was very fuzzy exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to have experiences, travel the world. You know, exactly you know what what people tell you that success looks like, you know, independent of your, of your gender, you should be uh, accumulating experiences and, uh, yeah, and, and finding yourself, your authenticity. Um, so I, I wasn't the kind of girl who dreamt about getting married, you know, about dresses, about children especially, uh, because I also kind of grew up in a very, I was very isolated from other children and also from, from babies. So to be honest, I probably held one or two babies before I held my own baby. <laughs> so zero experience. I had a, to YouTube quite a lot to, to understand <laughs> what exactly to do. I remember even when I, when I was in, in the hospital with my baby, like there was um, a nurse helping me to, to change his diaper. And I, she was looking at me. So come on, do it. I was like, I've never done one of these. So you have to do it and I'll try it <laughs> afterwards. Mm -hmm. They were very shocked that I had never changed that. Well, you know, that's just me being, you know, the quintess quintessential uh, neoliberal individual i don't change diapers i have no idea how to so um uh yeah so there was no no actual connection to to this world of the eternal feminine for me um i also did not want to get married you know I'm, my family situation was kind of very very turbulent there's always fights you know um kind of in the end it, it turned out it turned into divorce and it was just i i just couldn't imagine getting into a situation like that. And uh, I didn't see the upside at all. It just felt to me like, okay, you marry someone and then it's a perpetual war until the day you divorce. And then maybe then you have a day of silence. And I was like, why, why go through it in the first place? <laughs> so um, essentially what, what turned it around for me was um, I think partly, you know, a feeling a physiological call for it at one point, I think, I was kind of in my mid to, to later 20s when I, there, there's just something in me that I was like, okay, I think I get it. <laughs> I think there's something here. Uh, you know, children seem pretty interesting to me right now. So um, I kind of started thinking about, uh, about this sphere and exploring it. And then also 
my new atheism softened as well. Um, I was uh, just just more interested in kind of a spiritual dimension. I saw. I also saw kind of that my pursuits really didn't go anywhere. Like whenever I conquered a new a new mountain, you know, I was looking down into the abyss, and every with every new mountain, the abyss got what wider and wider and wider, and there's literally nothing that could. Um, in a way satisfy me. I just kind of, you know, was on this hedonic treadmill and, you know, I just felt like I had to run faster and faster to get absolutely nowhere. Um, and the idea that, oh, I'm just going to get another promotion or, you know, make more money, like to do what, to not have more time to spend it or, you know, it just, it just all seemed a bit, a bit empty. So um, then I realized, okay, um, maybe it's time to, to change course. And then around my mid-20s, I decided, okay, I will, you know, I'm going to do my, my darndest to, to find someone to share my life with and to have children and to have a more, you know, tr traditional life. Or, I mean, now, you know, we're using traditional, just like normal, like, you know, what people have always done. Mm -hmm. Try to return to my roots as a human being. Uh, it doesn't, you don't even have to label it because now I'm, I'm associated with this whole label of being trad. I'm just, I'm just a woman who's <laughs> married and have, has kids or you know, has kid. So it's not, <laughs> it just feels so weird. Everything has to be a fetish nowadays. You can't, you know, you can't just be, just be normal. Everything's, you know, it's, yeah, it's part of your authenticity. I identify as, as a traditionalist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's a strange space to be in. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I don't know necessarily how much of this was ideological or me having some sort of epiphany, how much of it was biological was, uh, you know, just, you know, me hearing the call of nature <laughs> to, 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 yeah, exactly, do, do what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, how much was me just getting over the, the promises that were made to me by society and realizing, okay, yeah, this is, this isn't, this is empty. You know, I'll never know, but um, I'm very happy where I am now. I'm happy I, you know, made this decision in my mid-20s. Um, you know, it takes a while, even when you're looking for someone to get married to, uh, to get married, to decide to have children. You know, there's a, a bit of a lag time there, so <laughs> I managed to do it in time. And uh, I know that, you know, a lot of women don't really or think about this stuff when they're in like their mid-30s. It's, it's hard. It really is hard because there's also this layer of, you know, a lot of men think you're desperate in your mid-30s, so they're kind of already avoiding the situation of, you know, you don't want to get with a woman and then she has baby fever within three months. And, yeah, I mean, I also understand that perspective. But, yeah, so it's, it's good to, you know, if you have this in mind, maybe do it sooner rather than later because, yeah, there's, a, there's some lag time involved. Mm, uh, and I want to ask you kind of in line with that a little bit then another figure that we both seem to appreciate is Roger Scruton so uh, in line with his work then I want to ask what's the importance of place or home for the subversive today again we don't need to focus too much on labels a uh, kind of local or even national in contrast to the kind of rootless cosmopolitan a uh, mindset of the kind of elites and their their legacy of like bland coffee chains and all that kind of nonsense. Places, yeah, <laughs> places, place place is very important. Um, it's you know, it's it's one of those uh, variables that has been suppressed by elite thinking, just because it's 
it's exclusionary by definition. You know, you can't be, um, you can't be, for example, Irish in the sense that you are Irish. You speak the language. You know, you you are immersed in the the, the place, the, the the culture. You have family in the region. Not everyone can be Irish. Like someone coming from Ghana today uh, is not going to be Irish, and that is, you know, that is anathema to the liberal mind. They cannot fathom that. You know, there is there are categories that are precious and useful. Uh, and that people do well to appreciate and cherish and want to continue that are exclusionary that you cannot you cannot access you know like even i i can't i can't, can't become irish overnight you know maybe in a generation or so if i really <laughs> and with the idea that um i integrate myself into the the rituals and the practices and the families and the language maybe but the idea that you know oh you know if if uh, if one of us is irish we are all irish no, no, we're not. And it's fine. It's good that we have, um, you know, we have French people that are different from the Irish and they have their own, their own, you know, specific cultures, which extend past the cuisine. It's not all about <laughs> restaurants. It's just some kind of this obsession of people that think, oh, you know, multiculturalism is having many restaurants. Yes, maybe. <laughs> but then you end up having like a, a whole section of London that is just Turkish restaurants. Is that multicultural? I don't know. It's it's an enclave. So, yeah, it's um it's a it's it's understandable that people um bristle at the idea that um these these categories are important. But I think they um they reflect something very, it's, it's not just genetics, but it's something that, you know, is, is precious to each human being. And without it, you see people going a little bit off the rails with, for example, you know, this whole uh, obsession with how you identify. Um, you, people are obsessed with how they identify because they don't identify as the things that they should be identifying. You know, they don't identify with their family. They don't identify with, you know, languages and cultures and things like that. Those things have been deracinated completely. They've been almost raised off the face of the earth. And you're, you should be ashamed if you associate with these things. So we need to invent all of these other categories. You know, some, like, for example, even, you know, being fat is now something that you can identify with or, or, or that's, that can be part of your identity. But that's essentially kind of a, an externality of a market that's producing this 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 uh, dysfunction of society where so many people are just extremely fat because they're, you know, they they have these irresistible hyper palatable foods available everywhere, um, and then the solution that we have in society is that okay we're just going to turn this into an, a protected category. You know, the solution to the problem that everyone's fat is that you you shouldn't call them fat. You call them a person of size or something like that. So it's it's <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. And we we we've, we've done this with many other things. Like for example, I don't know, sexual promiscuity as well. You know, you shouldn't shouldn't slut shame, and then people either um, identify as sluts or you don't call them sluts because that's really bad, but they identify as um, sex positive or something like that. So mm -hmm. there's all these newfangled attributes to uh, slap onto social dysfunctions because these women aren't happy. You know, the idea that you're you're now being essentially used by X amount of men just because you know you you do it consensually. I mean. You do it consensually after a while, but then your you know your soul dies, <laughs> and then you maybe maybe you revi revisit that that consensual relationship. <laughs> so um, it's it's a it's a strange place that we find ourselves in, where you know your your natural identities are are anathema, and now you have to pick from this menu of toxic sludge that you have to identify with, just to you know just to fill that hole where 
you know, your identity is supposed to be. Because we, we, we tend to want to be someone to other people because that's, that's all identity is. Like, who am I to you? Who are you to me? How do you relate to me? Where is my place in the social hierarchy? Um, how do I relate to other people? And it's, it's really important. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a very healthy way to, to do it. I mean, the, the way we're, we're told that, you know, this is, the, this is your authenticity. You know, you can just assemble a menu of, of labels and then that's your unique snowflake self um, because these are all empty and, like I said, they're essentially trying to, um, to shoehorn positivity into things that are practically toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that, Alex. And um, another kind of part of that traditional embodied living is a healthy relationship with the, the environment or Christians would say the creation, um, which I want to ask you about what does a sort of conservative green philosophy maybe look like uh, in contrast to that kind of to treat everything as stuff or the or maybe the other flip side, the ardent environmentalism, which seeks to impose top-down kind of regulations from NGOs or states and things like that. Yeah, I think the um, there is a natural uh, cons- conservation in conservatism or in kind of the, the right, um, which ties also into the idea of, of localism and, and stewardship of territory of of where you live um and it's also attributing rights to these spaces uh and not not only through this legalistic frame because essentially what the what the left wing does is says okay we need new laws we need the government to to mediate our relationship with the environment they need to uh, tax outlaw do things that's not the ideal relationship that you can have with your environment because the government is a, is a very blunt tool. It doesn't really work. What essentially ends up happening is you have these inflated, uh, you know, apparatchiks and, you know, it just, there's, there's not actually the budget that you have there is not going to things that actually work. So the solution that the right wing has or should have, if it wasn't so obsessed with being kind of this, um, kind of the libertarian free market fusionist type ideas that, you know, Reaganomics type right wing, which is slowly isn't anymore, but there's still kind of a big core of that, um, is that to, to go back to this model of local stewardship to empower people who, you know, in within the local hierarchy to to protect these spaces and not do it necessarily through, you know, the, the blunt force of centralized government, but to have, um, you know, local committees that are in charge of, X parcel of land and to, to have strict limits of on you know like urbanism and things like that to decide okay you know what what is um what is under the hand of the commercial because at the moment everything is almost under under the hand of what's what's commercially possible uh, and what is off limits and what is you know the, the the patrimony of of people in this in this region so I think that's that's a big difference between between right wing and, and left wing approaches to the environment. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Alex. So uh, next, if we may, I'd love to look at some of your writings and use those as a little kind of springboard to talk about a few ideas that seem to have developed over time. 
So one being the behemoth, welcome to your new religion. So I want to ask you even going from 2020 to today and some of your writings. And uh, first thing would be tolerance, kind of liberal doctrine you criticized even in 2020. And I want to ask why you find that so insufferable. And can you describe that a little bit and how your the work on your podcast has only reaffirmed or added to that kind of skepticism for the kind of sloganeering, as it were, over actually real life that we're kind of hitting at? Yeah, because um, I think, you know, what I was uh, saying before as well related to you know, the idea that liberalism is empty of values. Um, it has it has one core value, the idea that, you know, you, you don't want to repeat the Second World War. You don't want to, you know, reestablish that dynamic between pure evil and uh, persecution, like the, the ultimate persecuted minority uh, and that kind of enshrines tolerance at the core of liberalism okay we do anything for tolerance whichever way that is interpreted today so for example you know today obviously ukraine is the is a narrative that kind of has to fold into the the, the concept of tolerance um and who do we tolerate and who don't we tolerate uh, and you need to uh, exert um extreme um extreme grace to the victims and extreme prejudice to the people who are seen as being the oppressors. So that's kind of, you see all these narratives folding into, you know, the anti-vaxxers also, extreme prejudice against the anti-vaxxers. Mm -hmm. So what, whichever world event is happening right now, and had, there has to be one core world event at the, at, in the middle of the narrative nowadays to, to motivate this polarity, to say, okay, who, who are the Nazis? Who are the Jews? We always need to know who are these people uh, and, and how does that play out um so that essentially is i think that's kind of what i what i wrote about in 2020s oh sometimes it's hard to remember exactly what i wrote about <laughs> uh, but it's um you know the idea that uh you know this is this is the core ideal at the at the heart of liberalism um and it plays out in many in many strange ways um and that we have to identify it as such uh and to realize that you know tolerance may might be um a value as such as, you know, like racism might be a vice, it might be a sin for sure. Is it the only value that we want to optimize for? Is racism the only sin we need to? Because essentially racism is the opposite of tolerance. It's just the, the extreme, extreme prejudice. That's, that's what we're, we're trying to, to get rid of in our society. I mean, yes, important values, sure. The only values, no, I, I don't think so. Might there be situations in which other values supersede, you know, being perceived as racist or intolerant? Yes, I think so. And I think that, you know, we're, we're um, doing a, a lot of stupid things by being very afraid uh, of being uh, tarred with these uh, with these sins um, and yeah and not being able to to actually you know orient ourselves along other more more productive axes so um, yeah I think that's that's I think what I meant in that article maybe <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great thank you Alex and um, recently I spoke with Dr. Erica Bakyoki who's much to say about feminism that we hinted at from a, a good or ill from a Catholic perspective and then another feminist of a different sort, we might say, is uh, Mary Harrington, who we mentioned. Just regarding that, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about what appeals to about, say, Mary Harrington's concept of reactionary feminism. And then what are some of the ways that contrasts, say, with modern feminism or much of the modern kind of trans ideology? Yes, um, I really love Mary Harrington's work. I feel like she's she's going places. I think she's going to be one of the you know intellectual superstars of uh, of uh, today and tomorrow. Um, so 
um, what what appeals to me about reactionary feminism. Um, it's an interesting concept because if you know if you ask someone who's not necessarily as versed in the uh, in the theory of feminism as Mary, uh, they would say that reactionary feminism is not feminism at all. <laughs> it's uh, it's it, it is feminism in the sense that it uh, is there to protect the interests of women, um, but it's also um, it is reactionary in the sense that it it completely rejects the uh, positions that classical or, you know, third, second, third wave feminism uh, posits as to be in the interests of women. So it, what it rejects is this conception that women are um, individuals, are only individuals, and that they are striving to be, um, you know, to essentially kind of acquire that, that authenticity. You know, they're acting only, only from that perspective. I mean, what, what reactionary feminism brings in is the perspective as as women, as, for example, part of kind of the symbiosis with children, um, as women um, part of family. Um, so women that have interests that are that are uniquely tied to these institutions and to these other people um, and that are not um, completely deracinated or, you know, so what reactionary feminism optimizes for is for women in, in that um, entangled mode as part of, of a, a greater whole rather than women as individuals, which, you know, you see kind of this girl boss feminism say, okay, you can make more money, you're in, in a constant uh, adversarial relationship to men, you need to get more out of your relationship with men, you know, if your husband doesn't do this X and Y, divorce him, things like that. So, um, yes, so in a way, these two um, perspectives have almost nothing in common. And it, it is strange to call them both feminism, but, mm -hmm. but they are. The only thing that unites them is the idea that, okay, they're both working in the interests of women. Uh, Mary says, um, these are not the interests of women. Mm -hmm. So she has a completely different perspective on what, uh, what the interests of women are. Um, and you were, you were asking about trans. Well, trans is just the, the next step in, in, you know, women are individuals, people are individuals. You know, there's some you know, homunculus behind the eyes piloting this, this meat suit, deciding that, um, you know, today I want to be a woman, today I want to be, I don't know, whatever type of cisgendered <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of new new neologists cisgender just means normal but uh there's uh yeah there's all sorts of um asexual bisexual plurisexual pansexual um types of uh of attributes that you can identify as you know pronouns that you can identify as which are just kind of um you know like in video games they're skins they're they're you know little little bits of identity that you can you can essentially pay for if you consider surgery and hormones and things like that that you can add to your um spectrum of of qualities uh, and that you've chosen as a rational individual um i mean reactionary feminism kind of um uh, rejects the idea that you are the rational individual or that 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 is your primary mode so in a way, that's how it also rejects uh, the idea of trans. Trans is impossible if if you take reactionary reactionary feminism at its word that this is not the primary mode of being, especially for women. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I understand it as. I think it's uh, I think it's an, a useful and interesting um, concept, especially because it's kind of. Um, it's confusing, but also kind of uh, softens people up because it's like, oh, it's it's feminism, but how is it different? Makes <laughs> it makes people ask this, and then they find out, and then they're like, oh, so it's not like feminism at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's useful.
That's excellent. Thank you, Alex. And um, alongside the kind of philosophical uh, trickle down of ideas that I think does a lot of damage to society oftentimes, obviously it's good in the right instances, but in what we're hinting at, there's also the kind of um, changes in technology and that how that um, has a kind of acts as a catalyst for some of these bad ideas and it intertwines with those. So you've written about this. So alongside that, discussing these kind of ideas and trends, you point heavily, I think, to the role of, say, the internet and modern technologies, focusing on how they make us more and less free, but kind of ambiguous. Um, so in one article you wrote, Plastic, Rigid and Polarized, it seems that you've developed your thoughts since. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that and why it's important that we wrestle with and reflect on the impact of technology in order to live well today then? Yes, I think uh, I think technology is uh, is underrated by a lot of people who like to think philosophically. A lot of people who are interested in, in philosophy and history tend to think um, that you know the theory comes before the practical implementation of of said theory. Like for example, even a lot of critics of, of feminism say, "Oh, you know, feminism came in, and then uh, you know women you know realized." based on this philosophy that they could be free and then they appeal to the men to to give them rights and you know that's kind of how things uh, you know snowballed from from that point i think a lot of times it's the other way around you have um events in history events in technology events that for example you know made us um prosperous made you know the problem of food and shelter less of a of a, a complex thing to be solved daily and it also allowed men and women to drift apart like for example systems like patriarchy were not negotiable back in the day you know if 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 people would opt out of these systems it would mean essentially chaos for a larger group of people it was just not possible to to say oh you know i'm just going to um, go off uh, backpacking through Europe in you know the 1400s. It doesn't work like that. You know everyone depends on you to be providing X amount of labor for you know for the food. Uh, you know there there's property concerns to be solved by marriage. There's all sorts of um, very practical things that have to be solved by these relationships between people. When technology came in to create labor-saving devices, to create an abundance of food, to, you know, when when you could work an hour to get a, a, a day's worth of food, which is you know unheard of historically, um, then you know all of these all of the theory became possible. All of these rights became uh, you know human rights. Um, and this really couldn't have happened. And now we were at the point where technology really has reached a point where. Um, it really is just playing with with uh, kind of ancestral parts of our minds uh, in a way that is really um, it's 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 a, in a way of modern slavery where you really cannot disentangle yourself from these from these machines um, and you know a lot of these these addicting technologies are extremely legal like for example social media has. Uh, Full, uses the same technology as slot machines. You know, slot machines are slightly regulated in some regions, but everyone knows that this is addicting technology. It's, it destroys families. You know, it's it's about as addicting as alcoholism. There's all sorts of little things like this. Even, you know, we were talking about food earlier. Food has the same properties now. People have figured out what type, what is hyperpalatable food, what exact proportion between salt, sweetness, you know, softness, chewiness, is, is most adapted to what people like to eat. Um, that food, not coincidentally, makes you sick and fat. And then they, they're serving this everywhere. And 
I can also understand the kind of the, the libertarian argument that you don't want you, the state intervening in everything. But at the same time, there's, you know, this stuff is, is like I said, it, it is a form of modern slavery. And a lot of people, you know, are, are very susceptible to this. You know, if you go to a, a, a low-income neighborhood all around the world, what are you going to see? You're going to see gambling, uh, gambling establishments. You're going to see slot machine salons. You're going to see all sorts of these um, kind of dens of enslavement, um, and they're preying on the weak. Uh, you know, bars and things like that. Obviously, you know, <laughs> this this stuff is not necessarily new, but we've just found another thousand ways to do what what alcohol has been doing forever. So it's um, it's a it's 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 a scary thing. I don't necessarily know how how you could opt out of it outside of some form of Amish uh, thing. Is the only solution to have the government intervene in every one of these industries and disrupt it? Um, I don't see that as a positive either. I don't think the government is a very good tool to, to sort this out. So it's it's a really it's a complex problem, and I think we're going to have to face it eventually because you see this, you know, like all of these tools are are messing people up. They're messing teenagers up. They're um, you know, it's 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 a very these are very dangerous things, and I don't think we've reckoned with how much we've changed and and how humans um, exist and relate to each other in the last ten years. Um, you know, it this it's about it's been about ten years since since the first iPhone. Um, it feels like forever. It really feels like you know, have we ever lived another way? Um, we are kind of a, a different type of creature at this point. So I feel like a, a huge reckoning is coming, um, and uh, yeah, there, you're going to, there's going to be a way to to deal with this. I don't know exactly which way it's going to go. Mm, excellent, thanks, Alex. I think alongside the the recent actions with geopolitics, that also what you're saying undermines this kind of liberal conception that human beings are primarily rational, and um, kind of just simple choosing creatures, and shows the impact of these different. Uh, kind of facets of reality all taking place at once so my next sort of question is in line with that so I really enjoyed your uh, conversation with Sir Abumari and I kind of broadly agree with him obviously from a Christian perspective that restoring the Sabbath and a kind of Sabbath consciousness would be a real help and even principles alongside the utilitarian kind of help um, and a great good alongside the kind of leisure that uh, Joseph Pieper the philosopher talks about and so on and I think this is an area that um, speaks to what you're really in, unveiling there, not just that we're kind of religious in a propositional sense, but that we kind of um, conduct these liturgies to order our societies and our lives. And this is something you see in the Canadian philosopher James K. Smith and the Orthodox theologian uh, Father Shmeeman. They've written about these kind of secular liturgies versus Christian liturgies, something that I think sort of became obvious with COVID and say the BLM protests. Um, Jonathan Pajot, who, a YouTuber I really like, he described the kind of role of sacrifice and uh, the, how these liturgies play out, which is fascinating. So I just want, in, kind of in line with all of that then, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on, on one, that, and um, any kind of subversive habits, rituals, things like that, that you've been developing maybe to subvert those new kind of liturgies that we're talking about, if that makes sense? Yes, I think um, um, people do have to impose all sorts of methods of, of self-constraint, um, if you can. Uh, because kind of my my other point on on this type of um, you know this perspective that that everyone is a rational agent is that everyone is a rational agent on a spectrum. There are people who are very irrational, 
who are much more prone to be to be victimized by this, who, you know, I'm sorry to say, might benefit from a sort of, you know, paternalism in, in some respects, which has completely been gutted now. We don't we don't have any more guardrails, you know, you know, far be it from us to say what you should do with your life, even if you're someone who's completely disoriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who have always benefited from the choose your own adventure menu, you know, people who are high in conscientiousness, who are, um, you know, high in intelligence, high in all sorts of qualities that, um, you know, give give you status if you if you're in that in that space um yeah it's it's much easier for them to say oh of course people are rational animals you know because in a way yes you are probably more rational than others and it's 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 beneficial for you and if in, in a system like this if someone else fails oh they must have just chosen wrong you know you know i i chose well you know i'm i'm a product of, of meritocracy i've i've done the, the the best choosing i chose to go to stanford you know that's that's amazing (laughs) so um it it also kind of legitimates the hierarchy that we have now the idea that uh yeah you you're um you're here you know as a product of your own choices um and in a way that's um that's something that uh i just had a an anonymous uh poster on my show yesterday night it's going to come out a bit later uh kofefe anon and he has this whole thing where you know he says the the wokes are more more right than the mainstream um and you know kind of woke people or people who are who are in the space they they realize that um this is true you know that the 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 meritocracy that is being promoted by kind of you know the the, the core establishment is a sham um and that a lot of people are falling through the cracks uh, and that, you know, these the people at the top didn't get there pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, but their explanation is that, oh, you know, it's it's racism, it's oppression, you know, something's keeping these people down. Mm-hmm. Well, in reality, there, you know, a lot of people just have don't have the capacity to get to these points, you know, and, you know, does everybody get to go to Stanford? No, they, they don't. <laughs> that's, that's the re- realistic answer to this. Will there always be inequality? Yes, there will, you know, but so, uh, but, you know, do we live in a meritocracy? In a way, yes, but also, you know, these people are left behind and they're being abused by a system that, you know, doesn't see itself or doesn't want to see itself. So, um, yeah, I, I thought I thought that's, you know, that's a, a good insight. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there was another question, wasn't there in there? Yeah, so uh, regarding your own kind of personal habits and kind of liturgies, if we want to call them that, and how that has maybe helped you to support the kind of dominant party. Yes, I mean, how I've changed mostly is that I've uh, I've tried to, you know, for example, I stay away. I try to stay away from my phone on the weekends, which is, you know, hard in itself. But that's kind of uh, one of one of I don't think it's I could call it liturgy in any way. But that's that's one thing I tried to do just because, you know, that's that's the most time I have. And I try to do a lot of uh, kind of physical work if I can, you know, cooking, gardening, cleaning, you know, being away from the screens as much as I can, um, because I don't know, I I. Maybe this is just me also interpreting my relationship with with the the machines a little bit, you know, negatively. But I feel like you know every hour I spend that's that's not specifically targeted to a specific activity on these uh, on these platforms and in on these screens is something that you know I feel like it's it's reducing from my life. It's it's sucking the life force out of me. Um, and there is such a thing as you know there's there's a, there's a point where 
um, even if I do work, it's, you know, the marginal return is negative. Uh, it just, it just is, it's too much. And we're just not made to be in contact with machines so much. Um, so I'm thinking, is, is there any other ritual that I have? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty regimented in, in how I, I have my day. It's also, you know, when you have a baby, there's a nap schedule. You kind of have to be very, you know, strict about, you know, I wake up at 5 a.m. I do X at that time. Then that happens. So um, I think that's, you know, that's probably the, the most ritualistic thing that I do. You know, I go to sleep almost at sundown just because that's that that's what has to happen. So, um, yeah, you know, having a very tight schedule is almost like a ritual, I have to say. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Alex. And then um, I want to touch a bit more on some of those kind of new faiths, as it were, and tie some threads together and kind of into a narrative that better fits the facts, I think. So I want to ask you not necessarily about, say, science, but about the kind of scientism, its dominant kind of physicalist and strangely neo-gnostic kind of form. Has this then, as some sort of scholars, and I think clearly YouTubers have argued, cleared away the old time religion, as it were, and left a vacuum for the kind of new pseudo religions only to emerge, say, in the form of transhumanism, which I think shares many of the same underlying presuppositions that uh, we mentioned earlier with trans ideology. And what are some of the kind of main problems with that from your perspective now, even? Yeah, I think you know, scientism is a is a natural religion to to emerge, um, because it's it's been uh, a provider of of actual miracles, you know, things that are are you know inexplicable to a lot of people. Like you know, how does your microwave work? You know, how does the TV even work? How does this work? How does you know inter inter country internet Zoom calls? How does this work? <laughs> um, it's it's quite miraculous, and the people who do this are quite um are quite good at what they do or else it wouldn't work so i think a, a lot of people see this um they they know them by their fruits uh and then they think that these people are the people to solve societal problems mm -hmm. uh, because if they can produce you know a working product that does something you know miraculous then probably they can produce a working society um and they can produce a working ethical system and they can you know if we just apply the right algorithm to this problem um it will solve you know it, it it's just uh, it's just like you know having a zoom call you know running a society having uh you know a moral framework it's it's the same um the, the issue is that it's not the same because it is very hard to establish what is true in an ethical framework, um, because, for example, if you're doing, if you're working in software, you just hit compile, and if it doesn't compile, or if it doesn't doesn't actually produce the intended effect, you go back in and you solve it. There's there's direct feedback on what is true and what is not true, and if the product does what it does, and if it sells in the market, if people actually buy it, you know, there's all sorts of uh, inbuilt uh, feedback mechanisms in this type of activity, and so is so in science in some fields, not in social science though, which is why none of them. But, um, you know, in, in many fields of science, there is direct feedback. So these are kind of a few fields that are very prominent and very interesting and very relevant to modernity um, that seem to be uh, the way things work because they're so visible. Um, this is how very few things work, very tiny slither of things that work this way. Um, and politics is not one of those things. Uh, ethics is not one of those things. How we live together, and you know, and what what is hu what it is to mean uh, meaning, you know, 
who am I? What is it to be human? These are things that don't work that way at all. They have no uh, error correction mechanism. There is no direct way. There's no magical way in which truth appears. If you if you ask these questions, you know, if you put it in the marketplace of ideas, all you're gonna hear is that you know a thousand people have a thousand opinions on what it is to be human. What is meaning? You know, what is life? What is consciousness? You know, can it even be uploaded? You know, all of these things, um, they don't work like a computer program. Uh, so um, I think this is a, a blind spot uh, in, in our collective vision of, of what it means to be human. Um, and I also think that, you know, I, I hope that people are kind of seeing through this, you know, because um, that's why a lot of people are kind of are tired of the IDW or kind of the, the core um, thing where, you know, you just it's kind of the the kind of a, a parade of the, the craziest thing woke people have done today. I feel like after four years now, we kind of know that the Wokies are crazy. Okay, so what? What what happens? Why why are you different? You know, on what principles do you base your um, attack on on this? You know, of the, on these lifestyles? You know, and usually people don't have any. So um, now that's kind of you know um, people are kind of seeing through the fact that you cannot you know derive an 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 uh, odd from an is. So. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm in charge of documenting, or at least that's what I've uh, assigned myself to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope I hope people kind of see through this. Yeah, excellent. I think uh, your work is most important to take people to that next level, as it were, because you see it even with uh, the likes of Bill Maher. So one of your former guests, Aaron McIntyre, commented something on Twitter about, uh, yes, he's not, he's not changed any of his views it's really just the culture that's left him behind it's just a repeat of the old neocon kind of myth and people can stop there whereas i think it's great that you're like having punched through that kind of neocon myth and things like that so i appreciate that and um i wanted to hear your thoughts actually alex about the a bit more about that neo-gnosticism then and if you've uh, come across much by carlo lancelotti and uh, augusto del noche and if you think that their work is important um i think in line with what you're describing there it is in, like, um, I think the neo-gnostic understanding is very insightful to take the culture one thing. And then another thing would be seeing civilization as a kind of social organism united around these kind of embodied communities where we share these collective myths or series of myths, which you'll see in the Noche, Kalakoski, people like that. And uh, I think, again, that undermines at scale the kind of a kind of crude rationalism that we were talking about earlier. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts. I've seen you re reference mimesis and different things like that, which I think is more helpful maybe for understanding how these things replicate and pass on rather than kind of um, crude rationalism that we're talking about. Do you have anything to say to that point or? Yes, yes. Um, I'm not as familiar with Del Noche as I am with, with Gerard, who's kind of the, the, the father of the this concept of mimesis. Um, it's. Uh, I think it's a very useful concept to dispel the the myth of the the, the rational individual, um, because you know what what does what impels a human to act? Uh, it is desire. Um, you know, we would probably just you know be hanging out in bed and you know being fed through a tube and, and not not be interested in participating in life at all if we didn't have this impetus of of going out and doing things, of achieving things. You know, what what is the instinct that drives you to um, 
drives this quest to achieve X and Y, you know, to, to get a sports car, you know, what, what in the world would make someone want a sports car or I don't know, an inflatable pool to put in your bath, uh, you know, in, in, in your backyard or something. Um, it's, it's this instinct of, of mimesis. You, you want what other people have. Um, and without, you know, without being in the space where there are other people to, um, to inspire you to, to want things or to, to get into that mimetic rivalry with and to pursue interest. I mean, this obviously you can, you can go very, um, kind of Evo psych on this and say, okay, this is, you know, because uh, people are typically in, in competition for mates, they're in competition to, you know, access resources and things like that. Yes. I think that's, that's a, probably you know the the source of of this type of uh, of activity but at the same time it exists and it essentially what it tells us is that you know the idea that you just sit at home and you have this stroke of inspiration as a, as a, a rational individual to say okay i want to be the best the best lawyer in you know St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> that I can be because why? Because my my authentic self wants to generate this, and I also want a red sports car. You know, why why do you want a red sports car? Because authentically, it just I, I feel called to get a red sports car. <laughs> so it's um, you know, the idea that this you know this these are all self generated and they're not just part of um you know the the way the the other the world influences you and feeds back into you is uh kind of dispels this idea that okay we're just we're just rational agents and we see what we need i mean what do you need you know you need food and shelter um and maybe a hug i guess or something like that very very basic type of stuff that you need um what do you desire what you desire is infinite you know there's there's an infinity of desires and it's constantly updating based on um you know the status hierarchies that you you uh, fall into or the things that you aspire to uh, by seeing other people so i think that's that's a really important thing and this that kind of like you said it it um it makes it clear that we are all kind of nodes in, in larger networks um, and we are extremely interdependent in everything we do. Uh, and if you model your perception of the world as, you know, these, you know, individuals, you know, a, a, a whole world of one just deciding what they're going to do, um, it's, it's, it's just not a functional model of how things actually work. Um, if you know someone, you know, um, if you know someone's five closest friends, you're probably going to be able to predict a, a very big part of, of how they are and who they are and what they aspire to. Uh, if you just know, I don't know, basic facts about them as an individual, it's going to be, it's going to be a bit harder. So, um, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way, you know, there, there are two ways to model people. I think, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of value in seeing people as individuals as well. I think that's uh, an innovation of Christianity in a way. Um, but that's just not the only um, level of aggregation that we have to pay attention to. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Alex. Um, kind of building on that, I'm wondering then, um, with the likes of Jordan Peterson, what do you think um, the remaining insights are that he can offer and what are some of the limits that you're starting to see now and where does it kind of come to an end? Yes, I think... Um, Peterson, you know, he he opened up the whole concept of um, of the collective unconscious, of of archetypes, of 
uh, religion as a kind of metaphorical truth of, of, of truth as being kind of the pragmatic version of truth where uh, you have, uh, you know, things, things that prevail or things that survive rather than things that, you know, are rationally true in a scientific sense. So I think he, that's, that's a huge space that he opened up. Uh, is he the ultimate expert in everything that is, exists in this space or is possible in this space? I don't think so. I think he was quite a, an, an important milestone in, for a lot of people. And he's kind of gotten, you know, he's, um, he let a thousand flowers bloom in his wake. And I think that's really, really important. I was very much emboldened and encouraged by, by his work and, you know, him being very courageous at a time when people really didn't, didn't feel like, uh, you know, pushing back against pronouns because it feels like such a, you know, okay, whatever, um, I'll say whatever you want. Uh, but he was, you know, the fact that he was stalwart against against that imposition and that made, you know, that was the case heard around the world. I think that was really important for a lot of people. Uh, it definitely was for me. Um, what he can offer now, I feel like he's he's kind of gone a little bit on the back burner because he also has a huge profile now. He has something to protect. He he didn't really have much at the at the start of his career. He was saying things that no one was saying. Um, now the conversation has changed. It's moved. You know, the new space that I think is 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 important and is generative is kind of the, the post liberal moment. Jordan Peterson is a liberal. He he does not enter the space. You know, he's he's actually gatekeeping the space. Uh, so. Um, and a lot of people who are kind of in the IDW, Sam Harris types, um, you know, they're they're also interested in, in not going past this point. Uh, so, yeah, I think he, you know, what he has to offer is probably his old lectures, you know, go and watch, you know, Maps of Meaning. It's it's, it's wonderful. And it's uh, there's a lot, even his psychology lectures are, are great. Uh, it's super important content, super generative, especially if people haven't seen them yet. Um yeah, I, I don't know at this point if he's actually doing a lot of original work. I feel like he's kind of repurposing his greatest hits a little bit. And that doesn't mean it's 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 a bad thing, you know. He's he's produced more, you know, output than than most intellectuals ever will. So, um yeah. That's kind of it for me. No, that's great. Thank you, Alex. And um I want to ask you about the kind of descriptor of the meaning crisis. Do you think that's helpful and Hey, what are some of the consequences and metrics that you think might actually make that a worthwhile way of describing the problems of today? I was thinking here of things like race and suicides, drug dependency, say sexual impotence, all sorts really. But uh, do you think that's a helpful descriptor that um, the next Peterson have used? And do you think that's worth a this space talking about? Yes, I think it is a helpful descriptor. Um, I think it's it's kind of you know downstream from the fact that you know we we really don't need each other anymore uh, in a direct way like we don't need each other for for food and shelter and things like that and humans are a a social species we're we're supposed to be together we're tied to each other in ways that we don't even we can't perceive and now that we've been split from each other um you know that that hole that that void is very hard to fill again because it's almost kind of a, in, in economics there's this term revealed preference you know people have the revealed preference that the, in a way they they'd rather uh, be alone. If they don't have to know their baker to get their bread, they they're not going to. If they don't have to be social to you know to solve the problem of uh, you know the the basic Maslow's pyramid type stuff, uh, they're not going to. So I feel like a, a lot of that is tied to you know this this almost natural drifting apart because technology has allowed it. Um, so I think yes, the the meaning crisis is one thing, but I feel like it's at heart for me it seems to be kind of a, a disconnection crisis. Um, as well. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, there are other layers to it, but I feel like that's kind of a, at, at the core of what a lot of people are complaining about. Um, and the, the problem is, it's like, again, it's kind of a game theory problem. It's like, oh, I, I want to connect to people, but maybe they don't want to connect to you. <laughs> you know, it's very hard because I've, you know, I've, I've lived in, you know, the kind of the, the atomized big cities of the world. And um, you can have a friend to go out to lunch with every month and you can have 10 friends like that. But, you know, it's you just kind of catch up with X and Y. They're, they're not really part of your life. They're just kind of fleeting passengers through it. And there's kind of this this constant loneliness about the existence no one really wants to tie their days to you you know it's too much commitment it's too much involvement it's too uncomfortable to deal with people every day to you know put up with their moods to you know navigate disagreements to you know you'd rather kind of drop a friend if they get too complicated rather than actually go through the slog of of um you know cementing your relationship with them it's very very hard and you can see this in the fact that you know most people have you know what what is it on average zero friends or something there's like a statistic okay well that's a pretty low average <laughs> so um yeah i don't know to, to me that kind of is is the heart of the matter but yes overall it's it's yeah it's meaning but where where do you derive meaning from from mm. conviviality from from meaning something to another person Thanks, Alex. So um, my kind of countryman, Keith Woods, <laughs> quite a controversial figure. Yeah. Uh, he, he, I'm not even sure if he's a Christian, but he goes into this um, interesting critique of transhumanism, which I want to kind of paraphrase here, if I may. So I think diverse Christian and non-Christian figures have each lamented this kind of banal worldview, which doesn't call us to the depths of that conviviality and things like that. A word I love, which uh, Elitz uses too, which is great. And uh, how that kind of outside world is seen to simplistically as made of just stuff, as it were. So uh, Bernardo Castro gives out about that. And out of that stuff, then he says, comes this kind of more complex life, but it's still stuff ultimately with this kind of self-referential physicalist idea of uh, emergence. And he, he hints at the different kinds of reductionism and how the, from their perspective, the mind can be reduced to the brain and the brain reduced to chemistry that makes up the brain and so on. And this trickles down um, to kind of pseudo religions like psychoanalysis where the conscious mind can be reduced to the unconscious and that can in turn be reduced to sexual desire and then we see that with marxism and economics where that you have this interplay of history and human agency which can be reduced to the study of the material forces of reality and class relations and then with some like other post-liberals um do you see this then as a basic trajectory and um this kind of human plasticity how do you hope people react once they see this or see through it and through this reductionist picture then from our like little subversive coalition as it were yeah i think that's uh that's an interesting way of, of looking at it yeah but i mean they're all kind of flavors of of materialism or you know that that thing that uh you know like you said it's every everything's reducible to its component parts uh and yeah and this whole uh idea of emergence uh you know which i use quite often especially related to kind of social phenomena and and uh, uh kind of egregores and stuff uh, <laughs> i think you know there is something to be said about emergence but the idea that 
um, it explains the universe uh, and every phenomenon that we see. It's like, oh, you know, if you have enough uh, brain cells, you know, the, the brain will emerge. It's just emergence from, you know, the ba basic components. And if you have enough atoms, you know, brain cells will emerge. Um, you know, that's uh, that's a very thin explanation. And, and I, I like that idea of, you know, uh, a lot of kind of the, the most malignant ideologies of the 20th century are essentially ideologies of, of emergence all the way down. Um, Yes, in a, in a way, I think the, the resistance that people see to this are, is the resistance that I w had when I was a new atheist, you know. Um, if if not emergence, then what? You know, you kind of have to bring religion back into the picture. And I feel like a lot of people are, are resisting religion, especially old school religions. Um, and then they invent, you know, all this new agey stuff that essentially uses the same ingredients, but just inserts emergence at a different level. Um, where, you know, you still kind of have to have a leap of faith, obviously, you know, oh, oh it's energies, man. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what type of energies? Like with the gamma radiation, you know, what are you even talking about? So, yeah, it's um, it's it's all leaps of faith. And I think that's kind of uh, another thing that uh, that kind of drove me back to to Christianity and, you know, in the in the limping fashion that I that I've been driven back um, is the idea that, you know, there is always a leap of faith. You know, I saw I saw through the many leaps of faith that I was making as a new atheist, um, and how toxic and uh, destabilizing they were in in my practical life, in in the results. You know, you, you shall know them by their fruits, and the fruits sucked. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, that's that's a very easy way to, to see if your if your system uh, is bad. Uh, you know, if if you if you have a bad life, your philosophy probably is sh is shitty. <laughs> Sorry to say, you should be doing something else. Um, so yeah, I think that's you know that's kind of a you know instrumentalized way. Of, of viewing it but you know at, at the same time it's also it's also pretty practical so um yeah i i think you know i i like a lot of uh keith wood's kind of breakdown i wasn't aware of this one but uh, it's it's a it's a good one um how will people realize this and what will they do if they realize this um yeah i think a lot of the the red pills that have been offered by kind of the people on my show and you know even by people people like keith woods um you know, there's um, there's this whole debate in a way now happening online and and you know in these spaces between kind of elite theory and uh, and kind of uh, the idea that you know in a way democracy people people knowing what's happening and then they they vote or they act uh, and then the regime changes on the basis of the wishes of the of the populace. Um, I tend to you know, go more towards the idea of elite theory. I feel like, you know, history kind of proves that uh, the the reality is, is shaped more by the actions and mindset of the elites, which trickles down in the sense that people aspire to elite ways of thinking, elite ways of, of it being, um, and, you know, almost by by design do at least kind of shape what the what the what the results are in, in society. Um, so I think that's uh, you know if if people if enough elites understand and internalize these messages, that's probably what's going to move things and what's going to change things. Um, you know if you know people who have no influence learn about this, I think that's good. I think learning is good, but it's probably not going to be some form of I don't know popular revolt uh, against the modern world. Uh, it might be a change where. Um, it just becomes more uh, interesting to elites to be, you know, for example, have more traditional lifestyles, you know, for women to get out of the workforce, to have more children, to things like that. And that probably would 
trickle down to people uh, in, in a more effective way than to say, okay, we're going to have an orthodox revolution from the ground up, you know, grassroots orthodox army <laughs> and tear down, tear down everything and, and impose a new, a new Caesar. Yeah, I don't know. It seems, seems just more likely to me that it's going to be the other way around. Mm. Thanks for that, um, Alex. So just to sort of to conclude for today, I've got one or two questions. So I want to ask you, is there anything that we haven't mentioned um, or building upon what we have mentioned that you'd like to tell us about or you still feel a passion to get involved with in the future? Um, passion to get involved with in the future? Um, not not really, to be honest. I, today I got involved with the the uh, the fight against surrogacy. <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, so that's uh, I don't know if that's going to be my my new thing, but uh, it's it's essentially based on my my distaste for kind of transhumanism and uh, also the idea that you know you can have like fungible female wombs just walking around being rented by I don't know different different types of people trying to. I know pay to to get a baby it's I just feel I just feel very uneasy about this and I feel like this is a, another good point I think Aaron McIntyre makes this point a lot um, it's okay if you cannot rationally say why you feel uneasy about a, a, a thing you know you can you could like for example um, child pornography I mean maybe the child the children consent maybe they got a lot of money out of it maybe it it, it boosts their self-confidence to appear in pornography you know you you never you never know maybe <laughs> they identify as you know pornographers you know there's all sorts of things that you could say about that it's okay to just say that you think child pornography should be outlawed and you think it is a grotesque thing and you don't have to say why <laughs> because a lot of things you know we have uh, pretty good instincts about about good and and uh, we can get uh, overtaken by people who, you know, maybe have better better wording for, for their explanations on why we, you should override your instincts. Um, you know, if you have instincts, it's, it's uh, perfectly legitimate to just hang on to those. Uh, I know that's not the liberal way. I know that's not what, you know, science tells you. You should be rational never at every move. But sometimes you're you're more rational than you know by just, uh, you know, even if you don't have the words. So the last question, just um, then where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, the main place where I am for now, until I get kicked off, is, is Twitter. Um, my handle is at uh, Kashuta, which is just my last name. Um, the Subversive Podcast is out everywhere on, on all podcast platforms. Um, I also have a Subsec and Patreon, which you could find if you type in my name. Um, they're essentially... Uh, the, the, the main advantage, the main selling proposition there is that you get everything very early. Um, yeah, if you'd like to support the uh, the cause of subversive speech, please do, do donate. Um, and that is pretty much what uh, what I do and where you can find things. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alex. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and God bless you. Cheers. Thank you so much, Mark. Oh,